Okay, this is the second part of Module 5, Session 7. We started the Kingdom of God in our Systematic Theology part of BTI. And so what I'm going to do is just back up briefly. We did, we did part of it. And we, we started the story of the mediatorial kingdom. And you remember that we said that there are two main understandings of the kingdom of God. That there is the universal kingdom, that God reigns over every detail of everything at all times, and we understand that. But then you have the mediatorial kingdom, where the kingdom of God will be established on earth. So I'm going to go back and review through that. We'll pray first, and then we'll do a quick review, and then get up to the 12th of 18 of the points that we have in the uh, kingdom of God. So let's pray together. Our Father, this is our day to quiet our hearts. This is the day when we push back against a world that has become completely secularized. This is a day when we remember that we are part of a greater kingdom. And this is a day when we remember the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And it is not only our privilege, but it is our duty. We are compelled to learn the Word of God We thank you so much that Christ has revealed himself through his word. We thank you for the Holy Spirit enabling us to understand the word of God. And it's it's an eternal endeavor. And yet a five-year-old can pick up a Bible and if he has basic reading skills, can begin to see the glories of an eternal God who made him. And so, Lord, this morning as we consider the kingdom of God, I pray that one of the impacts on us is that we look forward to that day, that we know that this world is not all there is, that we have great hope and encouragement because Christ is coming soon. And our final redemption, our, the redemption of our bodies, the, the, the final consummation of our salvation is on its way. And for some of us here, Lord, we're, we're more than halfway home, and we rejoice in that. We rejoice in the coming kingdom, and we look forward to that kingdom. But in the meantime, help us to learn as much as we can, just as we would uh, read about a trip that we're about to go on. And so I pray that that would be the impact on us today. And that in the meantime, we would live in light of the coming kingdom, that we would be patient and kind that we would be filled with the fruit of the Spirit, always looking forward to the coming of Christ and acting as if that day is tomorrow or today even, so that we might not be ashamed when He comes. Lord, we thank You for this time. We pray it's useful to Your people and honoring to You. In Christ's name, Amen. Amen. Okay, so... The story of the mediatorial kingdom, I'm just going to uh, give you briefly the highlights. We're not on that slide yet. Um, creation, the story of the kingdom begins in Genesis 1 with creation. Uh, man was to subdue and to rule God's kingdom. Man is God's vice regent over the earth. Uh, the second part, the kingdom in the Abrahamic covenant. God begins the process of establishing his kingdom on earth through Abraham. And through Abraham, the third part, he gives us the formation of a chosen nation. And so you see uh, God's plan moving forward, and it moves forward on the, on the wheels of the covenants. Um, first, the Noahic covenant, then the Abrahamic covenant, and so forth. You have kingdom land that's promised to the chosen nation. And then through Joshua, the Lord gives his people the land of promise. 
That's the fourth part. The, the fifth part, the kingdom of God on earth with Israel really reaches his first um, massive high point under the kings Saul, David, and Solomon. After that, we see the, the unraveling of the temporary kingdom. And what that tells us, if you've sat in on the Ezra and Nehemiah messages, um, every time the kingdom gets close to being established, what we find is that it won't stick because we need a new heart. We need a new covenant. And so it doesn't stick because God's people go off the rails. They, they become literally uh, spiritually worse than their pagan neighbors. You have the sixth part. With the decline of the kingdom of Israel, now you have uh, the prophets with a new focus. It's not obey now, it's the kingdom is coming later. We went through Joel 3 and Amos 9 and some other key passages about the future glorious earthly kingdom. Why are, we, why are we so confident in that future kingdom? Because God promised Abraham. The Abrahamic covenant is the anchor. It's the key. God promised Abraham that a nation would come from him that would possess a land forever. And so that kingdom will always um, be on the horizon there. The seventh part we looked at was the first arrival of the king. The New, the New Testament era dawns in the first century. A little side note here. We'll, we'll never get rid of this, but I'm not a big fan of calling it the Old and the New Testament. Um, I, I think that a teacher of the law in Jesus' day, i.e. Paul, would not like the term Old Testament. Um, he said that the law is good. Uh, first Testament and Second Testament is, is maybe a better term. It's never going to happen, so we'll just stick with old and new Um, but we have a Bible and all of you should rip the page between Malachi and Matthew out of your Bible because there shouldn't it shouldn't be there it's just a continuous flow of information now there happens to be a 400 year period of silence where the Lord doesn't send a prophet that tells you um, like a big pause that something new is coming and so you know when we take a pause it's for a second when God pauses it's for 400 years so uh, so The New Testament era dawns in the first century and something of monumental proportions happens. The the kingdom has been promised. It's been sort of established through Saul, David, and Solomon. The kingdom failed. The promise of a coming kingdom. What do you have to have to have a kingdom? You have to have a king. And so the first coming of the king is this spectacular uh, event. He has the lineage to be the promised king. He's born of a virgin. He'll someday rule over Israel. He'll save Israel from her enemies. He'll be a blessing to Israel and to all the Gentile nations as well. Luke 2 tells us that. We get to the eighth part of the kingdom story. The kingdom that Jesus and John the Baptist preached was a kingdom known to the Jews. It was an earthly kingdom and it was entirely, totally consistent with the Old Testament view of the kingdom. We do not hold any view of the kingdom of God as being purely spiritual or purely fulfilled in the church today. Uh, We don't hold to that because Jesus didn't teach the kingdom that way. It was just like the Jews understood it. It was an earthly kingdom on this earth and consistent with all the passages uh, that Old Testament view of the kingdom. Um, just to just to give you a little side note here, um, <clears throat> there are there is a school of thought that says that the only place in all of the Bible that really speaks of the millennial reign of Christ, the coming thousand year reign of Christ, is Revelation twenty. Um, there's slight truth to that. It's the only place that gives the actual length of time, and it does it six times. 
thousand years, thousand years, thousand years, thousand years, thousand years, thousand years. And people say, well, those numbers are just symbolic. How many numbers, other numbers in the book of Revelation are symbolic? Zero. They're all literal. And it even gets down to days, 1,260 days, uh, three and a half years. You have down to the foot the measurement of a ginormous new city, New Jerusalem. So, so is it true that Revelation 20 is the only place that tells us about the millennial reign of Christ? Sort of. Tells us how long it is. How many other passages in the Bible speak of the millennial reign? Hold on to your hats. 799. I'm in the middle of cataloging every one of them right now just for my own study. And so far we've gotten to 800. So the kingdom of Christ on earth is irrefutable. And it's a decision that somebody makes before they ever open their Bible to not believe in it. And then you have to, you have to uh, begin to reinterpret everything. So this is so important because in that eighth point, Jesus taught a kingdom that was not invisible. It was not uh, uh, just spiritual. It was earthly. It was consistent with what the, the Old Testament said about the kingdom. That, that when Amos 9 says that agriculture will be so phenomenal when Christ is reigning on earth that the, the reapers will catch up to the sowers and so forth, that... You ask any Jew, what do you think of that? No Jew would ever say, well, in the future there will be a Gentile kingdom called the church, and that actually replaces this whole idea. No, you'll, any Jew would say, oh, finally, we've been kicked out of our nation over and over again. My people have been oppressed and killed and murdered at a higher rate than any other people in all of history, and someday we'll be at peace on our land, and I can, at peace, drop a seed in the ground, watch it grow, and reap the harvest and go worship my king. They would all say it is real and it is physical. So that's hugely important. Then we got to the ninth part, the nearness of the kingdom. As Messiah began his ministry, he presents himself to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And his message is repent for the kingdom of heaven is near or at hand. It's, it's right here. That message uh, changes though. It begins to alter because we get to the 10th part of the story, the rejection of the king. The kingdom plan takes a surprising turn. The, the people to whom the king came reject him. And the king uh, is rejected officially by the leaders of Israel. And at that point, he begins to uh, teach in parables. We have the 11th part, the confirmation of the rejection. There will be no belief in Messiah. There will be no restoration of national Israel, no kingdom at this point. And now Jesus begins to confuse the lost by speaking in parables. What's the purpose of the parables? The parables is to speak truth to those who believe and to confound the minds of those who don't. And so that's what he does. And he begins now, you see more of a focus on, on Gentiles even. Why? Because um, Christ is going to turn from Israel for a time and build the church on the backs of Gentiles. And to this day, Gentiles make up the vast, vast majority of God's people on earth. Well, that brings us now to the 12th part, the future timetable. The kingdom of God is presented, presented as something that will be at hand and near again when during the great tribulation 
That's when it's presented as being close once again. Luke twenty one thirty one, Jesus said, Even so, you too, when you see these things happening, speaking of tribulation events, recognize that the kingdom of God is near. And remember, what does it mean that the kingdom of God is near? It primarily means that the kingdom is on its way. The king is on his way. Robert Sosi, in his book on this topic, he says this, It's noteworthy that the same term used in connection with Jesus' first announcement of the kingdom is now applied to a future time. The kingdom that was near in the earlier teaching will now be near only in the future when this age has run its course and all these things, the events of this time leading up to the coming of Christ, are seen. So, at the beginning of his ministry, Jesus said, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near, is at hand. He quit saying that until he began talking about a far future time during and after the Great Tribulation. During the Great Tribulation, he says, that now the kingdom of hand is, is near. Uh, why would we say it's near? Because if you're a new believer, and there won't be any old believers uh, in, the, in the Tribulation period, if you're a new believer, what we call a Tribulation saint, and you begin to read Matthew 24, and 25 and read the book of Daniel chapter 9 and read the book of Revelation you're going to go this thing's coming to an end now in this era anybody who puts puts out timetables Christ is returning in 2023 and so forth um, they're full of baloney because there's no there's no signs of that once the great tribulation starts you can look in scripture and you could chart and you can actually know when Christ is returning um, some Christians say wouldn't it be great to be part of the great tribulation no it wouldn't be but it would be cool to be able to open your Bible and be able to chart out basically to the month when Christ is returning and that's that's the whole point of Matthew 24 and 25. He says, look for these signs, look for these signs, look, look for these signs. We're not told to do that now. What we're told to do now is encourage one another with these words and live faithfully. So the future timetable, the, the progression, um, the kingdom is near in the early ministry of Christ. Then the kingdom is not near because Israel has rejected their king. And the kingdom will be near again in the future tribulation. Then you have... The murder of the king, the 13th uh, part of our, our outline. The murder of the king. You have the exchanges between Jesus and the leaders of Israel becoming um, incredibly intense. You have the, these arguments going back and forth. And, and argument is just the best word we have. It's leaders of Israel saying something stupid and Jesus destroying their, their argument and their thinking. So it's not really a back and forth. It's more of a, and then a, a crushing kind of a thing. And so this, this unthinkable thing happens. That Israel, after having been promised a coming Messiah, after having looked forward to it, after having prayed for the coming of the Messiah, murders him. And they kill him when he finally comes. Now, the killing of Israel's Messiah is not a surprise to God. It's not a surprise to Jesus. If you read the Old Testament carefully, you see that the rejection of Jesus and his crucifixion was part of God's plan from eternity past. And a little side note, if you were here when we preached through Isaiah a few years ago, we spent five or six weeks on Isaiah 53. And you'll notice that Isaiah 53, technically speaking, and that's the great chapter about the crucifixion of Christ, technically speaking, is not exactly prophecy. Prophecy, in its strictest sense, uses future tense verbs, that something's going to happen in the future. Most of Isaiah 53 is with past tense verbs. This is the one that we crucified, the one that we pierced. 
So what does Isaiah 53 do? Well, for a Jew in the Great Tribulation, um, it's a way to read their, one of their favorite books of the, of the Old Testament to find comfort and to look back in past tense verbs at something that already happened, yet predicted 700 years before the event. What is the effect going to be? Well, I think that's one of the ways that Zechariah 12.10 will come about, that they have, they have looked on him whom they have pierced and they have repented. And so if you can read about the crucifixion in the only Bible you believe in, and it, it clearly fits all the facts, that's how the Lord will open the eyes. And by the way, thousands of Jews have come to faith in Christ reading Isaiah 53 because they recognize that the details fit exactly the crucifixion. So the murder of the king is, is not surprising to God. It's part of the plan. And as horrific as it is, it was necessary because Israel as a nation will never be God's kingdom on earth until their sins are paid for, until the sacrificial system is perfected in one perfect sacrifice. And so with his death, Jesus atones for the sins of the world, not just for Israel, but for every person from every tribe, tongue, and nation that will ever believe in him. And so going all the way back to the Abrahamic covenant, what did God promise Abraham? I will make your descendants a great nation and all the nations of the earth will be blessed through you. How, how is that? It, it, we are all saved because we worship the descendant of Abraham. We worship an Israelite. We worship a Jew, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so with his death, Jesus brings to an end the era of the Mosaic law. No one was ever going to be able to keep it. No one was able to keep it. He kept it perfectly. And so he fulfilled it. He closed it out. And with his death, he established the new covenant, which is better than the old covenant. doesn't mean the old covenant is bad. It just means it was incomplete. It was never meant to be complete. It had an expiration date. And that expiration date happened at the cross. When you get to the 14th part, just when everything seems lost, when the disciples are, are gathered in disbelief and shock, the king rises from the dead. He presents himself over and over again to his believers and they they come to know that he's truly alive, but there's still work to be done. The next part of the kingdom plan begins. In Matthew 28, he gives the great commission that the message of the gospel is not just for Israel anymore. When Jesus was preaching on earth, especially earlier in his ministry, what did he say? I came first to the lost sheep of Israel. Now, he says, go and make disciples of all the nations. Um, by the way, uh, the, the main verb in the Great Commission is not the word go. The main verb is make disciples. So, um, you, you might say, well, I need to go. You know what? Wherever you were born, God ordained that that's where you are. And so, he just had you go there by means of your mother. And that's a really easy thing. doesn't mean we don't send out missionaries. But uh, that, that whole thing has been blown out of proportion to say that, to, uh, like in my dad's generation, if you really, really want to serve the Lord, you got to be a missionary. The Great Commission says you're a missionary wherever you are. You always are. And that's, that's an important distinction. Ephesians 2 says that those who have been far from God and His covenants and promises are now brought near through faith. In other words, in the days of, of the kingdom of Israel, what, what did you do if you, if you lived in the woods of Europe? You weren't anywhere near the, the, the kingdom, the, gods, uh, the people of God. But Ephesians 2 says that now through the gospel, all have been brought near. 
were able to be brought near. Not only this, uh, Gentiles are brought into Israel's covenants and promises too. We, we share these. We partake in them. We don't take them over, nor do we inculcate completely with them, but we, we um, share in this. How do we share? Oh, a couple of examples. Wouldn't you, as a Gentile, like to replace all the leadership of our country with a king descended from David, who is eternal? Of course we would, and we will. Now, I don't know if the United States of America is going to exist in the Millennial Kingdom. It's not listed anywhere in Scripture. So, and I personally think Texas will exist, but that's just my, uh, my, my little thing. I think California is getting hit by all the missiles when, uh, when Christ returns, but that's just my opinion also. But wouldn't you like to know whoever's ruling wherever you are is directly under the authority of a Davidic king who is divine? Of course you would. And by the way, it might be you. Because the Bible says you'll reign with him. And Romans 11 says that all believing Gentiles have been grafted into Israel's promises. We don't take over. We're not, we're not uh, one just complete indistinct group. Um, the Bible's very clear about different nations. But we get everything that they get. And it's, it's a glorious, glorious thing. It is uh, very much uh, what Romans 8 uses as the picture of adoption. The, the, the amazing thing about adoption is that a child that has no lineage from a family is brought in and given everything that all the other children have. That's the way it is. Then you have the 15th part. At the end of the Christ's earthly ministry, the kingdom for Israel is still viewed as future. This is very, very important. At the end of Jesus' earthly ministry, after 40 days of kingdom instruction to the apostles, and that's primarily what he was teaching on, the the coming kingdom, the apostles still believe, listen carefully, they still believe in a future restored Israel. On the day that Jesus ascends into heaven, if that is a false belief, don't you think that Jesus would take that one last opportunity to correct that issue and to say, no, the kingdom is coming right now at this moment when when the Holy Spirit comes, or no, the kingdom is is, is, uh, here already. But he doesn't do that. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days, this is Acts 1, and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And so when they had come together, they asked him... Before, before you get to the question they asked him, and if you know your Bible, you're already going ahead of me, but before they get to that question, he's saying stuff that sounds like goodbye. He's saying stuff that sounds like, I'll see you later. Do you remember what, uh, before the crucifixion of Christ, what the apostles were always arguing about? Who's going to be first? Who gets to sit at his right hand? Who gets to sit at his left hand? Wait, let's send mom. Maybe she can get us in. Because it, it was continually a shock to them. They were blown away by the, the crucifixion of Christ. It, it, was, it was mind-numbing to them. That's, they ran away at the arrest of Jesus. And so, right now, yes, praise God, he's been raised from the dead. And they're, what, are, what are they naturally going to think? Surely now is the time. And so, what is their very last question to him? Because it sounds like he's saying goodbye and it's making them nervous. Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? Is it time to storm the palace of the Roman governor? 
Is it time to, to decimate all the unbelievers? Is it time to take over? Uh, I'd like to be in charge of my hometown. Is it time for me to go back and proclaim myself governor there? Is it at this time that the kingdom is coming? And he said, it's not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority. See ya. What did Jesus not do? He did not correct a wrong belief. They had a right belief that the kingdom of God on earth is coming. It just wasn't going to be then. So you, you cannot read Acts 1 and come to the conclusion that the kingdom of God is happening right now. You certainly can't come to the conclusion that, that uh, it was happening even at that moment. So his response affirms that they're right. Their, their theology is right. Their timing was off. Their timing was off. They were hoping it was now. They're, they're ready to quit being fishermen. And ironically, um, instead of becoming uh, leaders of a glorious kingdom, they would become leaders of a growing church. And instead of being honored for all time, they would every one of them lose their lives for the sake of the gospel. Now, you remember what Jesus promised them, that in the coming kingdom, you will rule on 12 thrones over Israel. So their, their day is coming. Uh, you'll meet those guys because they'll be in power. And they will rightly um, be under Christ in that era. So that's so important. That 15th idea at the end of Christ's earthly ministry, the kingdom for Israel is still viewed as future. So what about us? Because we're part of that future. What is the church age? The church age is the time of preparation before the kingdom is established. We are positionally sons and heirs of that coming kingdom. We're, uh, older translations call us uh, aliens and strangers in a foreign land. Paul says that going to heaven is like going home. And I know this is really hard for us to fathom because your, your home, uh, what's the old saying, be it ever so humble, there's no place like home. Your home is your place and you feel comfortable there. And even when you go on a trip, you like to come back home. That's, that's, where we, that's where we like to be. If you can fathom this, when you're home in heaven and home in the kingdom, it will instantly feel more like home than anything you've ever experienced. And that's a, you know, I, I like to make jokes about orientation day in heaven and, and that sort of thing. I don't know that we'll need that. It, you'll look around and say, oh, this is home. This is familiar. This is what I was meant to do. So the kingdom age, the, the, the church age rather, we are sons and daughters, your heirs of that coming kingdom. And when you go home, it'll be familiar. What is the church's job right now? The church's job is to add kingdom citizens. That the more citizens we add, the more glory Christ receives. And, and praise the Lord, he has plowed the ground for us through the doctrine of election. We will only add the citizens he's already chosen, but we're the ones who are to do the work. We enter judicially into the kingdom before its establishment. In other words, your name is in the kingdom roster. You are part of the kingdom. You're just not there physically yet. So you're part of the kingdom roster. And as sons and daughters and citizens of the future kingdom, what are we supposed to do in the meantime? We're supposed to act like kingdom citizens, aren't we? We're supposed to exhibit kingdom righteousness. In the future kingdom, in your resurrected selves, you will be perfected and you will set an example for those mortal descendants of the survivors of the Great Tribulation. You will be the example, the perfect example. And what does what uh, God call us to do now? To be that example now. Romans fourteen seventeen summarizes this idea. 
For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So we're to exhibit that kingdom righteousness. We're to do that now. Um, 1 John uh, chapter 2 talks about um, walking in a manner that he walked. 1 John 2 elsewhere talks about not being ashamed when he comes and there's debate as to whether uh, whether that's speaking of an unbeliever being ashamed or a believer being ashamed. Um, I'm not going to take the risk. I'm going to assume it's speaking of a believer being ashamed. What does that mean? It, it means that when Christ returns, you're in the middle of screaming at your wife or you're in the middle of, of uh, pilfering money from work. And, and it's like, really? You know what? I don't know if Christ will say really, but that's the, the spiritual idea there. So, so we're, we're in a time of preparation. We're in a time of kingdom living. And listen, this is the, if, you, if you make this the filter for everything you do, how is my attitude at this moment a kingdom attitude? How is my attitude um, reflecting the fact that I'm supposed to be setting the example of what kingdom citizens look like? How patient am I? How kind am I? How, how determined to love others am I? That, that changes everything. That's why so much of New Testament writing about the future from Paul and from Peter in particular is all about living now in light of the future. Because the king is coming. And so we live in light of that future. So that's, this is a time of preparation. This is the time of, of bringing citizens into the kingdom and showing the world what kingdom citizens look like. When Jesus began his great teaching on the kingdom, in Matthew 5, and it could be argued that uh, the Sermon on the Mount, at least in, in some part, is demonstrating what kingdom citizens ought to live like. Um, some take the view that it, it's only about uh, what's going to happen in the kingdom and how kingdom citizens will live. I have trouble with that because all scripture is inspired by God and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. But very early on in that sermon, what does Jesus say about us? He says, you are salt and you are light. That's what we're to be now. Then you have the 17th part. The kingdom will be established on earth at Christ's second coming. That's the establishment. Daniel 9, 13 and 14. The appearance of Christ before the Father getting ready to come to the earth. Zechariah 14, my favorite chapter in the Bible on the return of Christ because it's just, it reads like a movie and it's, it's glorious. Uh, Matthew 25, 31, Revelation 19 and 20. The kingdom of Christ is established when he comes. And, and I know some feel that the kingdom is now and, and I understand that, and those are well-meaning people. Um, if we're in the kingdom now, I'm, I'm just thoroughly disappointed. Um, I, I really am. Um, it's like thinking you're going to Disneyland and you get to Burger King instead. It's like, okay, it's nice, but it's not, not what I thought it was going to be. And then one last part, and then I'm going to camp on this for a bit. The kingdom of Christ will merge with the Father's eternal kingdom after the millennium. And that may be a new thing to, to some of you. Um, 1 Corinthians 15, 24, Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. So, this is, this is a thought so glorious that I, I know I'm not going to explain it well. And I'd like to, if you have your Bible, turn to 1 Corinthians 15. Because I, I want to just show you a couple of facts here. If you're still struggling with premillennialism, that Christ returns before the millennial reign of Christ, um, 
I, I want to assuage some of your doubts. But here's the glorious thought as you find 1 Corinthians 15. The glorious thought is this. <clears throat> what is redemptive history really all about? First of all, through the cross of Christ, we're, we're all so thankful. I, I, you, we ought to be pinching ourselves every day saying, I can't believe I get to live all of eternity with the God of the universe because He chose me for salvation due to no merits of my own. And yes, that is a glorious thought. But if I could say this, redemptive history is not about you. You are a means to a greater end. And the greater end is for God the Father and God the Son to love one another, to love each other at a level that is unfathomable. So, how does that love express itself? God the Father set up a kingdom on earth. Who is the ultimate king? That king is going to be Jesus Christ. God the Father shows love to Jesus by uh, telling him you're going to have a kingdom and you're going to have subjects in that kingdom. God the Son shows love for the Father by being the sacrifice to bring those kingdom citizens into perfect righteousness so that they can dwell in the kingdom with Christ. God the Father shows love to the Son. Uh, Isaiah 53 talks about this by rewarding Him for His faithfulness. Philippians 2, that He has been given the name that is exalted above every name. Uh, That's not the name Jesus, by the way. It's a name that Revelation uh, 2 and 3 talk about as an unspoken name, a a name that nobody's heard yet. It'll be a name that, I don't know, it might take 500 years to say it because it says everything that Christ is. Side issue there. So God shows love to the Father, or uh, the Father shows love to the Son by by giving Him this kingdom, rewarding Him. Uh, Ephesians 4 talks about when Jesus ascended into heaven, He took captives with Him. Who are those captives? We're here. Aren't you glad to be a captive of Christ? I am. And so God the Father showing love to the Son, God the Son showing love to the Father. Now, what's the biggest problem in our universe? It's sin. And so what is God the Son going to do when He reigns on earth? That will be when He begins the process, the final process of eradicating sin on earth completely. He rules with a rod of iron. At the end of those days, Satan will be released uh, once again and the final rebellion will happen. Uh, Sin is crushed. Then you have the, the melting down of the old heavens and old earth. You have the great white throne judgment. All sinners are resurrected, judged for all time, thrown into the lake of fire, and and what happens then? I just read it, 1 Corinthians 15, 24. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father. God the Father has given the kingdom to God the Son. And God the Son has returned the, the, that love by eradicating the entire universe of sin and then presenting to his Father a perfect, sinless kingdom. What is redemptive history all about? It is about Trinitarian love. This is about the love of God the Father for God the Son, the love of God the Son for God the Father, and of course the love of the Holy Spirit um, in, in being the agent to make all of that happen. How did Jesus do miracles on earth as a human being? This is maybe shocking. Yes, He's God. Everybody believes God does miracles. Jesus did miracles on earth as a human being by the power of the Holy Spirit. And He says that Himself. So... Redemptive history is not about us. We're just the trophies. We are the, we are the, the awards. 
where the award passed to Jesus Christ from God the Father and then passed to God the Father from Jesus. So redemptive history is not about us. It is about God. It is about Trinitarian love. But I want to show you something here. We're going to camp on this for just a minute. Look with me at 1 Corinthians 15. The, the whole theme of this chapter is the end times, particularly resurrection. This is what the, the youth are going to be studying all week here in camp starting tonight. This is about the resurrection. Not only the resurrection of Christ, but our resurrection. So look with me at verse 22. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Okay, stop right there. What does that tell us? That tells us that there is more than one resurrection. There's not just one big giant event. Now, I, I said I'm going to relate this to, the, to premillennialism and the millennial kingdom. You'll see how this comes about here. But each in his own order. This is a word that means something happens, then time passes, and something else happens. Then time passes, and something else happens. And there's three of them. But each in his own order. Christ, the firstfruits. What does that mean? Jesus Christ is the first human being in all time to be resurrected. And you might say, uh-huh, no it's not. Uh, how about Lazarus? And how about people resurrected in the Old Testament? Well, Jesus is the first one not to die again. He is the first one to be resurrected in a glorified body, a body that now, 2,000 years later, he still has. Exactly, he has, can you believe this? He has exactly the same body that he walked around in Jerusalem uh, for 40 days before ascending into heaven. The same one. And it's perfect. The only remnant of earth are the scars that he chose in his sovereignty to leave on his body as a forever reminder that he is the Lamb of God slain for, for sinners. So the first in the order, Christ the first fruits. You see the comma after the word first fruits? If you could fit it in there, that comma you should write in 2,000 years plus is that comma. Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Now when it says that, his coming, that's not a technical term to give any order of events. It just means generally the, the parousia, the end times. That when Christ returns, um, we, we put the rapture and the second coming, he's, he's combining those. He's conflating them into one event. It doesn't mean they're one event. He's just giving a summary. At his coming, those who belong to Christ. What does First Thessalonians 4 tell us? That at the rapture, there is the resurrection of the saved dead and the changing into something new of the, un, uh, of the, of the saved living and that uh, is confirmed later on in 1 Corinthians 15. So that's the second event. What happened in between? So far, 2,000 years of, of history. So if the pattern is there's the first event in order, Christ's resurrection. Thousands of years happen. There's the second event, the resurrection of the church. There's one more event. What would you expect to be in between them? What you would expect to be is more time. And what's the third one? Then that is coming, those who belong to Christ. Here's the third part. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. You see the period at the end of the word Christ and, uh, and verse 24. I can tell you how many years to put in there. 1,000. That is the millennial reign of Christ. Um, in fact, the, the grammar in verses 23 and 24 is very clear that time passes between each event. 
And so if somebody has trouble, if they, if they want to choose to continue to say that we're in the second of two ages, that there is uh, all of the age before and now we're in the kingdom. If they want to say that, they have to do some, some gymnastics here to get around the fact that Christ the first fruits, 2,000 years. The resurrection after that, uh, future to, from our standpoint, um, at least 2,000 years. After that resurrection, 1,000 years. Then comes the end. Now, somebody might say, well, it doesn't mean that it has to happen 1,000 years later. Well, it does. Look what Jesus is doing when he's ruling on the earth. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. That's a process. That is a process. And what is the last enemy to be destroyed? It is death. What does Jesus do with the great white throne judgment? He throws Hades. That is the holding tank for all the unsaved unbelievers and death into hell. And so this is clearly a progression of eras, of ages, with time in between. You have the resurrection of Christ, you have the church age. You have the coming resurrection of the church, you have the millennial kingdom in which he is putting all the, he is, he is doing uh, the work of destroying all of his enemies. And then you have the final state after that. Then comes the end when Christ turns the kingdom over to the Father. So, I just wanted to point that out, that um, 1 Corinthians 15, 22 through 28 is incredibly premillennial. It just, it just is. There's no getting around it. Well, I want to give you some summary thoughts, some things that we ought to be thinking about, and then uh, we're going to go to one more passage. Yeah, we have time to do that. So, just some summary thoughts here. The church is not the kingdom of God on earth, but it is related to God's kingdom plan. Everything I'm about to say, we've already said this morning, most likely. It's related to God's kingdom plan. It's, it's, it's that gap between the resurrection of Christ and the coming resurrection of this people of this age. The Old Testament predicted that Gentiles will be blessed as a result of God's king and the establishment of God's kingdom. The Old Testament did not predict a church into which Jews and Gentiles are brought together as one new man. Paul calls that a mystery. And and no Jew knew about that. I mean, there are hints here and there, but it takes the New Testament and New Testament history to bring those pieces to light. As people in this church age become saved, they become sons and daughters and heirs of the coming kingdom that will be established with Jesus' second coming. And as sons and daughters and heirs of the coming kingdom, Christians are to exhibit righteous characteristics required for all who will enter God's kingdom. So in other words, what's your main worry about the kingdom? How am I acting today? That's your main worry. And then the spiritual blessings, not the physical blessings of the new covenant, which are part of God's kingdom plan, are poured out on all who believe in Jesus. This includes all members of the church. Are you going to own a little piece of land in Israel someday? Uh, Unless you're Jewish, no. Uh, But there's a really, really big world, so that's not a problem. Even though the kingdom of God itself hasn't been established, there's a sense in which we're related to the spiritual kingdom blessings of the new covenant. That's that's what's called kind of a both and, a, a, a now and later theology. Are we living the kingdom? To a certain degree, we are, right? We all gather together as citizens. Every Sunday is a reunion of kingdom citizens. 
Um, but we're, what, what's the main thing we're, we're looking for? We're looking for the coming of the king, right? So that's part of the reason we gather. And we've said this before. Um, our worship together on Sunday mornings, we... It's the oddest thing. You face a big wooden box, uh, and we even have a, an empty cross on the wall now. That's really nice. We have a cross up there. Um, but you face, ultimately, just other people. What is missing? I have this picture in my mind of Christ returning in the back wall of our church, falling down, and Jesus Christ standing there. That's what's missing. So, yeah, we're, we gather as kingdom citizens, but it's incomplete. So what should we be talking about? What should we be preaching we should preach that being born again is the only way to enter the kingdom. That's, that's our job. You want to be part of the kingdom? Be born again. Unbelievers should repent because the king is coming. Spiritual blessings of the kingdom of God are available. Forgiveness of sins, the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. The physical blessings are coming. They're on the way, but they're not here yet. And here's some, a few things we should not be saying And then I want to take one more little digression. We should not be saying the kingdom of God is only a spiritual reality. The kingdom of God is both spiritual and physical. The full manifestation of the kingdom will take place on the regenerated and restored earth. We should not be saying the kingdom of God is advancing in a post-millennial sense. The church making the world a better and better place. It's ironic to me that post-millennialism says that the church will make the world into a Christianized society, then Christ will return. We were close. That whole belief system almost died out in 1914. With the outbreak of World War I, post-millennialism was huge. That was the prevailing belief in evangelicalism. But World War I said, no, that just backed us up a thousand years. We're acting like barbarians. It's unfortunately making a, a resurgence today. But we should not tell people this. The kingdom of God is advancing now based only on one thing. And that is the advancement of the gospel. What is the great overriding temptation when you're trying to Christianize society? It is to be more concerned about changing laws. It is to be concerned about elections in November. It is to say, if only we got a believing president, uh, it, then, then the, the kingdom is coming. And by the time you get to run for president, you're so corrupt already that it's, I don't know if you can be a believer and be president. I, I don't know if that's possible. So we don't, we don't teach, let's make the world a better place now. There's only one way you make the world a better place, by your behavior. And by being good citizens of, of the kingdom of heaven, which always makes you a good citizen of your own nation. Every time. We don't say that the kingdom is advancing. Now, this is where I want to take a digression. One more time, turn with me to Revelation 2, and I'll just take a couple moments on this. But this is, this is an important point. I'm sorry, turn to Revelation 20, and then we'll go back to 2. Revelation 20. Revelation 20, verse 2. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. Um, what does that thousand years equate to? It is the time that Jesus is reigning on earth. The prevailing belief among evangelicalism today, we, we're in the minority, but the prevailing belief is that, that the, the kingdom is happening now. That's amillennialism. The kingdom is happening now. And that Satan is currently bound. 
that he's currently bound and, and that their, their evidence is, is that the gospel is going freely to nations. Uh, I'd like to see an Iranian Christian say, really? I would like to challenge that. Um, but they, there's a true belief that Satan is bound now and it is, it, it is defined as he has no real power in the world to stop the gospel. That he, that he is not ruling. He's not the prince of the power of the air anymore, according to, uh, as Ephesians 2, 2 says. So that's the prevailing belief, that you have to say that because Revelation 20, verse 2, destroys amillennialism unless you reinterpret it. So let's find out if Satan is bound today. Now turn to Revelation 2. Revelation 2 and 3, general agreement among people who disagree about a lot of things that Revelation 2 and 3 is talking about the church age. That, that this is now, this is, this is the era we're in. The, the churches at Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamum and Thyatira and Sardis and Philadelphia, Laodicea. Some think they even represent various types of churches. Doesn't matter. General agreement that this is the church age. So, look with me at chapter 2 verse 9. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich in the slander of those who say they are Jews and they are not, but the synagogue of who? Satan. Look at chapter 2, verse 13 to the church of Pergamum. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. How can you say Satan is bound on earth and yet Jesus himself, these are the words of Christ, says that the throne of Satan is still on earth. It can't be. There's five or six more times in Revelation 2 and 3 that Satan is the main character messing with the church. Satan is not bound. He is fully operational today, which means that the kingdom is going to be way better than people think it is now. This is not the kingdom. This is just the precursor to the kingdom. So, what's our conclusion to all this? The kingdom of God... It's the only story in the Bible. It is the only story. It is the story. Everything else exists as sub-chapters, sub-headings. The kingdom of God. God the Father establishing the kingdom as a gift to God the Son. God the Son cleansing that kingdom of sin and giving it back to God the Father. All through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the story of the Bible. I hope sometime, uh, if you have little kids, you either... Take them through these 18 points of the kingdom because the gift you'll give them is that they'll understand what the whole Bible is about. And you can give that gift to them before they're 10 years old. That's a phenomenal gift. Most believers today have no idea what the Bible's about. They pick out little verses here and there and don't know the story. So I hope, uh, hope you've enjoyed the story. That is the story of the Bible. Let's pray together. Thanks for your patience. Our Father, we come to you now thankful to be in the age that we're in, but looking forward with great anticipation to the age to come. In the meantime, help us to be faithful. Help us to be godly. Help us to be patient. Help us to exhibit the fruit of the Spirit of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control such that we would be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for taking time to listen.